We're going to begin the show with a case that set the stage for our modern understanding of free speech. In 1917, the year that the United States officially entered the First World War, a Philadelphia man named Charles Schenck mailed out 15,000 leaflets protesting the country's brand new draft. Schenck was General Secretary of the Socialist Party of the United States. His flyers urged newly drafted soldiers to assert your rights and to fight what Schenck and other war dissenters considered involuntary servitude. But earlier that same year, President Woodrow Wilson had pushed the Espionage Act through Congress. This law made it a crime to interfere with U.S. military operations, including recruitment. It would later be used to convict Pentagon Papers leaker Daniel Ellsberg, WikiLeaks source Chelsea Manning, and NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Back in 1917, Wilson and others believed that those who opposed the draft were endangering the war effort. It was on these grounds that authorities arrested Charles Schenck and sentenced him to six months in jail. He appealed the decision, arguing that it was a violation of his First Amendment rights. Now, to our ears, it would seem like Schenck had the law on his side because his civil liberties had been violated. But a hundred years ago, the law wasn't so clear. Here's University of Chicago legal scholar Jeffrey Stone. In 1919, What we think of as the court's constitutional role, it did not yet fully understand. It was not until World War I that the Supreme Court actually got involved in interpreting the First Amendment. And in Schenck's case, the Supreme Court upheld his conviction. The high court concluded that in wartime, the government had broad authority to suppress potentially dangerous speech. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote the majority opinion. And in doing so, Holmes wrote a kind of puzzling opinion, because the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. And taken literally, that seems to mean the government can never interfere with speech. And Holmes wanted to say, that can't be right. Um, And so he gave this famous hypothetical to say, well, clearly it doesn't mean what it seems to mean, because obviously the government can prohibit someone from falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. We admit that in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants would have been within their constitutional rights. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. And then he uses this very famous language of clear and present danger. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Most of us today hearing the phrase clear and present danger would think that meant a very demanding test, a very rigorous test. And nothing that Schenck did would seem to qualify for the kind of clear and present danger that's typified by, say, a false cry of fire in a crowded theater, where there'd be an immediate dash to the exits and people would be trampled and people would be harmed. There was nothing like that in Schenck. So it was clear that in the the spring of 1919, when Holmes handed down these decisions, his view is that the First Amendment had very little bite to it. But then Holmes began to change his mind. Later that summer, he boarded the train for his vacation in New England, and as fate would have it, Holmes was seated next to a fellow judge named Learned Hand. 
And very respectfully, um, because Holmes was a Supreme Court justice and Hand was a much younger man and a federal district judge, uh, and Hand began questioning Holmes about, well, are you sure you really did the right thing here? Hand wasn't the only one criticizing Holmes' interpretation of the First Amendment. Other public intellectuals pointed out that Holmes was, well, wrong. And to his credit, he actually listened to the different competing views. And when he came back to Washington the following fall, um, he began to have serious second thoughts about what he had done in Shank. That became clear when the court heard Abrams versus the United States that fall. Like Shank, Jacob Abrams and his cohorts had been arrested for distributing anti-war flyers. They were convicted under the Sedition Act of 1918, which expressly prohibited any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government. The majority of the Supreme Court said basically, this is a non-issue. We've already decided this last spring in Schenck, uh, and therefore these guys go to jail. And Holmes, to everyone's shock, joined by uh, Justice Louis Brandeis, wrote a powerful, eloquent dissenting opinion in which he latched on to the phrase clear and present danger. And he said, no, 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 the test is clear and present danger. There's no clear and present danger here. Um, Abrams cannot be convicted. The majority said, what are you talking about? Um, This case is no different from the cases from from the spring. Um, And Holmes basically pretended that the case was different. Um, and essentially said that, no, I'm right, you're wrong, you're misreading my opinion from Schenck, um, and this is the right way to go. Holmes was a highly respected judge, yet his fellow justices were baffled by his sudden about-face on the First Amendment. Stone says that after World War I, Holmes and Brandeis continued to push for a broader interpretation of the First Amendment in a series of eloquent dissents, but they never persuaded the majority. But what they did was to keep the issue alive, And they were such good writers and such highly respected intellects that those opinions gradually began to affect the way individuals in in America thought about freedom of speech. The Supreme Court finally overruled the Schenck decision in 1969 in a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio. This ruling said that government cannot restrict speech simply because it advocates breaking the law. The court cited several of Holmes's and Brandeis's famous dissents from nearly 50 years before in its decision. And it's a great example of exactly what they were arguing about. What they were saying is one of the reasons you have to have freedom of speech is so that ideas can be put out there and people can think about them and reflect on them. And over time, uh, in a marketplace of ideas, they can come to have uh, perhaps better conclusions. And their their opinions were meant to be and were in fact a, a perfect illustration of exactly what they were defending in terms of the meaning of free speech. Jeffrey Stone is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He is author of Speaking Out, Reflections of Law, Liberty, and Justice. So, Nathan, Ed, one of the things that strikes me about this story is over the long haul, sort of looking in the long distance of time, it's pretty striking how during times of war, or near war, or quasi-war, or threat, mm-hmm. those are the moments when fundamental principles, fundamental American principles, really get tested and hammered out. I think that that's absolutely right. Um, and in the case of Shank in particular, it's amazing to look at this language that we now just kind of take for granted, clear and present danger, having such gravity in the debate, right? I mean, what counts as a danger that presidents or Congress has to protect us from? Right. 
Yeah, even during the great crisis of the Civil War, I think we'd be surprised the extent to which the Democrats and Republicans argued over exactly this, the, the boundaries of appropriate power, because Lincoln was seen as a tyrant for uh, revoking habeas corpus, for infringing upon the freedom of the press, for <laughs> instituting the draft. All these things were seen as horrible violations of the constitutional rights of the nation. And so looking back on it, it seems obvious that slavery would have trumped everything else. But many times people saw slavery as a subset of this grasping for power by mm-hmm. Lincoln. When mm-hmm. he had the authority to end the war, he continued to extend it just to bring slavery to an end. So, Joanne, you're exactly right. Wartime exaggerates all these conflicts that are there all the time, and in the case of the Civil War, seemed to be disproportionately important. That's actually really helpful, Ed, in explaining, for me, was something that's confused me for a long time, which is, you know, why is it that in, only in the early part of the 20th century are you really beginning to see things like the Bill of Rights be adjudicated through the courts? I mean, I, I was always under the impression that when you think through the problem of the freedmen, the problem of post-Reconstruction, race relations in the South, that that would be about the Bill of Rights, right, about people's, their human rights, basically. I mean, you have a whole moment, a whole chapter, really, in the country's history where the Bill of Rights, even when there's a human rights crisis in the South, is not really what's being adjudicated. It's remarkable. And the the interesting thing about that is, I mean, particularly when you're talking about something like the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. right, is that we, we take these things to be absolutely defined and we forget how fluid they are and, and how they are worked and reworked and redefined over the passage of time. <laughs> 